Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. In season three, we explore the tension between faith and experience and tease this out as a distinction between faith and relationship. This dovetails well with our value for intimacy with God and encourages us to explore what we can expect a relationship with God to mean for individuals and communities intentionally practicing the presence of God. This week, we're joined by Jared Bias, co-host of the podcast, The Bible for Normal People, together with Pete Enns. We speak to Jared about his experience of God and new book titled, Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. Don't forget to like and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get noticed by the internet algorithms. If you love what we do, consider supporting us on Patreon. Jared, thanks so much for accepting the invite. I have been listening to so many of of the episodes of you and Pete over the last couple of years. And so it's really, really fantastic to be able to kind of meet you over a Zoom call and have some conversation with you. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an honor. So Jared, some of the, the, the space that we've been exploring with, with our guests is around their, their history in terms of their personal walk with God, some of their early experiences of God, perhaps sort of early years on in the faith within Christianity. Um, and then what led to, to changes and, and uh, questions and, and kind of the big D, the deconstruction. So we'd love to start off with, with some of your history, if you can, if you can give us a, an idea of, of how you got started, some of your background, some of your own narrative. You know, I'll, I'll start high level, but I can go into as much detail as you might find uh, helpful or interesting. But I, I grew up in Texas and... In Texas, it's interesting because uh, everyone's a Christian by default. That's sort of the cultural norm. So there wasn't a lot of emphasis. It was assumed you were a Christian just by nature of being a Texan in some ways. And um, so, you know, my family history, my, my grandmother is kind of an itinerant, uh, charismatic preacher. Um, she's actually Native American, Choctaw, and went to a Christian boarding school where she would have been you know, thoroughly Christianized in, in those ways, and became a, a preacher, which she still does to this day uh, in the charismatic uh, tradition. So a lot of speaking in tongues, um, a lot of emotionality. So the goal of the Christian life is to be uh, intimately and emotionally connected to Jesus in, in some uh, in, in emotionally charged ways. That's sort of how we tell who's the best Christian. And then on my dad's side, he grew up born and bred Texan and, uh, you know, wore the belt buckle and, and uh, cowboy boots to my wedding. So in that way, again, this cultural overlay would have meant he was Southern Baptist. So we went to a Southern Baptist church when I was really young. And the way that you sort of rise in the ranks of the Southern Baptist is to know your Bible really well. So to be uh, pretty smart, but also to be morally uh, pure. There was sort of this kind of purity culture element to it. But both, it's interesting because by the time I got to high school, I was really gravitating toward more of an intellectual tradition. And so I actually left my parents' church and went and uh, started going to a Presbyterian church by myself on Sunday mornings. And I found that to be a lot more intellectually based or, you know, let's think through the, the systematic theology of how God works. Let's try to understand the nuts and bolts in a rational way of how this whole Christianity thing is is working. Then I went to a Southern Baptist University. I went to Liberty University and then went to a Presbyterian-based seminary, Westminster Seminary. And uh, then it was a pastor of a non-denominational church where we had a former Mennonite uh, pastor. We had a, a Baptist pastor. We had many different denominations represented there on the 
on the staff. So that's kind of my upbringing. And it really revolved around this idea of uh, how much does our intellect play and how much does our emotion play in sort of our expressions of faith. Sure, that's fascinating. Both, if I hear you correctly, that, that that's seated both in kind of the traditions that you straddled, but also then within the family is kind of what it sounds like in terms of like your grandmother's side. And was there a very strong sort of also the, the, the intellectual systematic theology kind of side embodied in the family as well? No. So that would have been sort of I was kind of out on my own. Right. So both were pretty uh, the one it was more emotional. And I would say the other was more um, my mom always said the Southern Baptists are great because they teach the basics. So there was a sense of like more moralism, I would say, was what defined kind of the Southern Baptist tradition. And neither of those were, I would say, intellectual. And that's what led me to kind of seek the Presbyterian denomination outside of that. But all of this, just to be clear, was in was all within, which I later learned, the sphere of, of fundamentalism or evangelicalism. So in that way, prior commitments like the inerrancy of the Bible – those things would have been, of course, like basically we defined Christianity as those things. So anything outside of that would have not even been Christian. It sounds like a like an in- interesting mix of streams and expectations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, it was, you know, I remember quite often as a kid, you know, my, my parents had a plan. Like we're going to go to a Southern Baptist church when they're really young, because again, the Southern Baptists are good with the basics. And then you'll graduate to charismatic churches. Um, and so we actually, we followed that. You know, I went to Southern Baptist churches when I was really young. And then by the time I was in second, third grade, we started going to, at the time, you know, a mega church that would have been more charismatic. And it was so that we could kind of graduate into learning how to speak in tongues and, you know, the fruits of this, I mean, uh, the the sword of the spirit and, and being slain in the spirit and that kind of uh, talk. So there was sort of this program that we went through. Sure. That's fascinating. And, and what, was there something that you sort of, as you look back, you put your finger on or a, a chain of events that precipitated you striking out on your own into the Presby arena? Um, yeah, it's, you know, what's funny is I just moved uh, my books. So I had had my books in a, a rental property that we had had. We used to live in and uh, didn't have enough room in the moving truck. So, of course, my 50 boxes of books were the first thing to go. <laughs> And had to stay in this attic for the last five years. So I just got reunited. It's been a, it's been a glorious affair um, this past weekend. And one of the books had gotten ruined, gotten chewed into by a mouse or something. And so I opened it up and there at the top was the first uh, apologetics book that I ever got. I think it was called Christianity for Skeptics. That I remember getting that book and being so intrigued. I carried it with me everywhere. And it's a tiny book and it's super <laughs> basic, but as a 15, 14 year old, it took me forever to get through. And that's really what it was, was an interest in apologetics of saying, oh my gosh, there's this whole field of where we have to know what we believe, know why we believe it, and be able to argue that uh, with people who believe differently. And so I was fascinated by the topic. And that's what sort of led me down this path of Presbyterianism, because I was really interested in what's called presuppositional apologetics which was started by kind of this reformed Presbyterian group. And, and was the actor going on? So I, I hear you talking about the, the pull into that. Was there a sense of kind of, you know, this, this uh, where I'm seated right now is, is really not for me? Or was it just kind of a, this is more me as I step into the Presby space? Yeah, that's a, I think, um, you know, for me, I, I'm, I, look, I look fondly on my upbringing, both on the Southern Baptist side and the, and the charismatic side. So there really wasn't anything other than trying to fit a, 
you know, a square peg into a round hole of, I tried so hard to be emotionally centered and it just, I was just more of a brainy kind of person. So nothing traumatic, nothing set me off in a, in a, in a way, um, in a reactive way. It was more just like, oh, wow, this, now this fits me. Interested when you, when you say the emotional, cause I mean, that can mean so many things. What, what, what do you mean by that in terms of the, the specifics of what is kind of going on in there with you? Yeah. I mean, I think the, yeah, the bigness of your emotions, the display of your emotions was a big deal in my tradition. So for instance, I went to Liberty, which was kind of a Baptist school and to, to find my professors who I respected their spirituality. But when we were say, listening to praise and worship music, they didn't raise their hands. They just stood there and stared like that was a disconnect for me because be, because my tradition was the more spiritual you are, the more you publicly display, display your emotion toward God. And and so that was kind of the disconnect for me. It's like, oh, I, I'm more at home with those professors who just sit there and they're getting things out of it. They really appreciate it and enjoy it, but they're not going to be raising their hands and shouting and running down the aisle. <laughs> I see. Waving flags, etc. Right. Okay. Got you. Thanks. Sure. Fascinating. There's an interplay between, you know, the classic division between heart and mind that people have. And gr growing up, you must have found some way to reconcile that 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 for you. But the, the other thing is, is, is you mentioned that in Texas, everyone is by default a Christian. And somewhere along the way, you you landed identifying as such for yourself. What was what was that? Was that a transition for you? Or was it just a seamless thing for you to identify as a Christian later on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more of a spectrum, right? So if everyone's a Christian, it's more of who takes their faith seriously and who doesn't. That that was sort of the metric for me. It was like, well, everyone's a Christian. Okay, that's fine. Everyone's going to go to heaven when they die, sure. But how 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 much do we make this a priority? And so that that for me, I just was drawn to it, you know. Um, and you talked earlier about the 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 word deconstruction. And I found that the people who take their faith most seriously are the people who kind of end up in this deconstruction phase uh, because I really wanted to understand. I took it extremely seriously. It, it was a, a, a real passion for me to understand the Bible and read the Bible. And I carried a, a mini sized, you know, pocket sized Bible in my, in my back pocket all through high school. So it was sort of always on my mind. And of course, I translated that as then you're a better Christian, uh, because that's kind of the the rubric that was set up for me. It's fascinating. I, I haven't really come across many people who have this rubric for for measuring what is and what is not a good Christian so clearly, you know, so clear in their mind or so easily able to articulate it. Is is that something that, that, that took you a while to chew through? No, I, I understood that from a young age, and I think it's because I'm competitive. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I wanted to win, you know, I wanted to win at Christianity. Like, what does it mean to win? And it, for me, again, the rubric was in, in charismatic circles, it was the public display of emotion. So I could win, but it felt really inauthentic. And then Presbyterianism was like, oh, I can win in the way that I'm built, which is to be the smartest person in the room. Uh, and that's how you win. And so that's, that's kind of how I've, how I would, at the time I'm wired, you know, I'm a competitive person, but of course, you know, my book love matters more is all about the limitations of that and how maybe that's not what, what Christianity is all about. Yeah. I remember the story of you being uh, called down the, I, I, I don't, I'm not always conversant with the jargon, but I think in college you were talking about being called to come and settle an argument 
uh, that idea of, of winning uh, you tell that yes. story about let's go get jared like <laughs> yeah that was my proudest moment of my christian life right it's like jared's <laughs> the guy we call in to come argue on our behalf there's a challenging interplay in terms of how you evaluated the the, the spirituality and the the winningness of others ar- ar- around you and the difference between the more intellectual and reserved people and the people that are are, are quite quite emotional but if would you mind taking a stab at just drilling down below that to the sense of the the presence of God and the experience of God and the interplay between that and those two expressions? Well, yeah, I mean, it was assumed that the more public your emotionality, the more your the the deeper your experience with God. So that was that was sort of assumed, right? And in the pinnacle of that, at least in my tradition, was speaking in tongues, because it was this mystical. Uh, supernatural experience. And we were always after the supernatural because I think in some ways it proved, right, to go back to the apologetics, it proved the validity of our faith. If you could do something supernatural like speak in tongues, then there's something going on. And that tied into our fundamentalism around the Bible too, right? So, you know, when we read, when we read the book of Jonah, the most important thing is that this supernatural thing can happen. And I think it's this inferiority complex that if, if we can't prove the supernaturalness of this thing, we, we are left with what, well, I would say we're left with faith, right? Which is ironic. Um, but that was sort of this thing is we were always trying to out-rationalize the rationalists. We were trying to put faith in a box of reason. And it's funny to call that the emotionality part of that but that's how it was it was like the expression of it is evidence of the truth of it so it wasn't enough to feel it it sort of had to be expressed because then it could be witnessed and it could fit into the scientific model of evidence and so that there was just this pressure i mean and i don't i don't fault anyone for it individually but there was a system of pressure where the more you could express yourself outwardly the more we could believe you that you were having these experiences. So to have these professors who were confident enough in their belief that they said, listen, I don't need to raise my hand and run down the aisle. I just, I trust in Jesus was, it was really refreshing to me. Like, okay, good. Cause again, I also think there's a personality thing of like, good. Cause that's, I'm just not built to run down aisles. So thank you. I, I remember being in a in a church many years back that got into the whole renewal thing and of course everyone was a fan of making those big uh, trains and running around <laughs> you know yeah. in a line mm-hmm, of people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and the language of like getting in the river and everyone has to bounce up and down and run around and i was just like i just i don't do that you know thank you very much like <laughs> this is not my comfort zone this is not how i express myself um i don't dance the best of times you know let alone you know, in that kind of environment, you know, grabbing strangers by the hips and other people grabbing me by the hips and running around, you know, it's just, it just, it seemed, it just seemed quite ludicrous to me. Yeah. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that you don't love Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. Um, A a brief aside, one of my favorite uh, episodes of all time uh, of you with Pete is when you take your take home is in some obscure way he mentioned something about forget about jesus and i'm and you're like okay so that's the take home everyone just forget about jesus. <laughs> yeah you know i like waiting, to pin, you waiting know, for that to show up <laughs> you, can, you can take the man out of evangelicalism but you can't take the evangelicalism out of the man you know? <laughs> fair enough you know if i think about those spaces and having been in you know so out of, outside of the american context but 
similar kind of evangelical feels and the the, uh, the feels literally the the charismatic sort of spaces and whatever and there's a in some ways there's this outward sense you talk about almost as if there's this need to prove kind of what's going on that that i really do love jesus i really love god i'm really connected with god even in in some of the show and perhaps even then you know as you talk talk about the the rational side the intellectualism in terms of, of the the apologetics around i can really I really know what I'm talking about. I can I can sort of make a show of this. I don't I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth there, so you can you can come back to that if you need to. But in terms of the outer show, was was there also a sense within you within those movements, those moments in the charismatic churches, the Baptist churches, moving on into the Presby spaces, of kind of inner experience that that others were having that they were sharing with you, and and then within yourself, was there a sense of of inner experience of God? What was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think there, it's you know, it's you you raise an interesting question because there, there was this I, I I've never thought of it before, but there was this sort of double mindedness, right? So there was on the one hand this emphasis on personal experience, but on the other hand, we can't trust our feelings. No, we that's what new age people do. That's what the culture does, and we have to be countercultural. So in some ways, I was prepped for this understanding where experience matters. But on the other hand, I was told, yeah, but it doesn't really. Only experience that we can identify with God's prompting. So if it's not God who's in charge of the experience, then no, you can't trust it. You can't trust your own heart, right? Uh, your heart is is deceitful. It's, it's wicked, sort of, taking this Jeremiah passage out of context. So it's an interesting question um, around experience. But I think, you know, for me, for all of our talk about grace, what I chalk it up to as I look back on it was we were a law-based tradition. Both the Southern Baptists, the Presbyterians, everything that falls under this rubric of evangelicalism is is law-based. Even though we sort of we trumpet grace, we are we are terrified of grace because it's uncontrollable. And so it was all about control. It was about being able to identify who was in and who was out because that was so important. And of course, the different traditions had different rubrics. So who is in and who is out. Um, you know, if you're born of the spirit is the language of the charismatics, whether you're in or out. And you want to be as in as possible, right? So if you have this sort of circle and the boundaries is between life and death, between eternity and heaven and eternity and hell, you're going to have this rubric. And for the charismatics, you want to be as in as possible. So to express kind of the emotionality is to get more in and to not express it is to be on the boundaries. And in the Presbyterian circles, it's to kind of know your systematic theology is to be more in. And to know less of it is to kind of be at the boundary. And you don't want to be at the boundary. So, again, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think there's something there around people within a certain tradition being afraid of grace. And again, I, I come at that so compassionately because I was there and I understand it. And it's not, it's not meant to oppress. It's meant to confirm because we're afraid of being out if if it's possible would you mind going uh just just at one step further to to your experience of god like is is there a like a like a moment for engagement for you that uh that basically stands out as going yes yes where i first felt that i really encountered god you know one-on-one -on -one, that audience of one kind of engagement pete often publicly talks about kind of some experiences that he had. I think he writes about it in one of his books. That sort of is his anchor. And I think a lot of people have this anchor. And I, I think part of what I do, I do because 
I, I don't have one of those. And I, and I want to advocate for saying that's okay. I don't, I think a lot of people anchor their faith in a mystical experience. And I think that's beautiful. And I think it's wonderful. And I don't invalidate it. I think it's great. And I think we need more of that to trust our own experiences and feelings. For me, my faith is a choice. And do I feel the presence of God? Do I have these experiences with God? I'd say, no, I don't. Um, and, and I haven't in my own analysis, but I also understand that I'm pretty biased. Like I have a pretty much, it's the way I'm wired. Like I have a very kind of hard line about that kind of stuff. Um, and, and so for my faith, it's a, it's a choice and it's not so much about an experience with God as it is a community of believers. Uh, it is, it is a values based proposition. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of where I come from when I talk about being a Christian, but I completely respect and I would like for there to be more room for those who've had those experiences and to not invalidate them without quote unquote proof. That doesn't sound like a reasonable position at all. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> 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 I just had to throw sure. it back at you from earlier. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, just so, uh, you know, Tim, I, I understand the tongue and cheekness, but also recognizing, you know, I was trained in philosophy and I taught philosophy. And also, so whenever we can, we can get beyond understanding the limits of reason, um, then we can see that even the most reasonable argument and the, the most, the person who puts forth the, put, puts forth the most reason, we have to recognize the limitedness of that. Every, every conception of reason is contextual. And I think there's some humility that we need to bring into the conversation that is often not there. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you there. I, one of the challenging things was, uh, you know, going back to some good old classical theologians, that is, is the notion of the proofs for God. And in many ways, what, you, what you're touching on in the reference to the Prismes, uh, Southern Baptists and uh, the Charismatics uh, or Charismaniacs, as I often call them, is that is that we've got these contemporary proofs that are often added on to the classical ones, but none of them are actually proofs for God. They are logical positions that people build in one way or another, you know. And and obviously, logic is a sliding scale of logical to illogical. I, I find it I find it interesting that you you, you so clearly hold the, the the lack of experience for yourself, you know, or the lack of mystical experience as a as a cornerstone. For other people, it does end up being very important. Is it okay for us to just explore this more? You're not the first person to articulate this as their position. I chat to a lot of people who hold to something similarly, but you seem to have some good reasoning around this and are um, are quite clear in the articulation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm I'm happy to to explore that. Um, you know, I I think it is baffling. I think of um last year and not last year the last year has fallen by i just kind of discount 2020 as a year but i think it was maybe <laughs> yeah. two or three years ago um i had someone uh, you know we have people who reach out from the podcast all the time and and someone for whatever reason i probably just randomly pick people to just say yeah i have the time and energy and it was a pastor who was a youth pastor in a very large congregation who's having a lot of doubts and questions about their faith and they said you know what why are you still Christian? That's what was his question. So we had a Zoom call. I like talked to him and yeah, by the way, I was on Zoom before the pandemic. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but uh, so 
you know, I get on this call with him and he was clearly frustrated with me. I was not giving him what he wanted, which he wanted this apologetic of rational proof for God's existence. I'm like, I, I, there is none. I don't, I don't know what you want from me. And, um, and so, you know, I think there's something to be said for, uh, this conversation. All that to say is I think it's an important conversation because I think it's a different register. It's a different plane. I'm asking different questions than I think a lot of people are asking. Like they want this rational proof. And I say, why do you want rational proof? It's, it's overrated. <laughs> Tim, do you want to, do you want to dig in there then? Um, what, what direction are you wanting to go? I think this will be, I mean, just agreeing with you guys, I think it'd be really awesome to, to be able to have this conversation, Jared, around your and your position and your thoughts and, and feelings around that. So. You know, the background to our society in many ways is a, is a, um, it's a faith versus experience. It's empiricism versus, you know, um, you know, but, you know, the, the knowledge that has fallen out of the sky and been revealed in one way or another, you know, going back to maybe we say like a fideism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in some ways we, we, we end up with a, um, with a, with faith, in some, in many people's situation, is a is a leap from text to belief in God, but it's not founded on a relational engagement, and so in some ways, like 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 I'm trying to inch my way past the the classic divide between faith and experience, to 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 arrive at more uh, a distinction between whether there's a, a relational engagement or not, and then nuancing that relational engagement. Because I suspect that we've ended up with a, with a, with a false binary in society when it comes to faith versus experience, you know, science versus faith, et cetera, et cetera. This, this push for rationality, the push for proof, none of that is, is actual relational language. And yet when we're dealing with the idea of God, at least, we're putting forward the idea of a relational being who chooses to enter into relationship with us. And I'm trying to inch my way almost past what I see, uh, a false binary that is created that you can't actually get past because the positions are just so entrenched and they're so entrenched in ways that, if, that, that you know, remove any value from each other to, to almost inch past that towards the, towards the exploration of relational engagements and what the relational approach is for, for, for a person and what is the, the, the sense that, that God approaches them as well you know because like i always found back in the day as i studied theology and as i wrestled through it my engagement with god was very much wrapped up in the intellectual i, I imagine you've had no small share on your side of people basically accusing you or trying to invalidate you through going there's an intellectual component but you know we really have to get to this heart stuff you know um does any of that make make sense am i just rambling off into yeah, no work. i think that's i think that's right i think for me i would go an extra step so i think that's exactly right and i think that's i think that's the first for me that's the first step is how do we get into this relational you know we we want to talk about getting from point a to point b but we don't often want to talk about the relationship uh of a to b so i think there's this relational move and i think that's really key but for me i go a step further to say there's these, these points, and I keep coming to John because John is the mystical author here or community, however you want to talk about it in the Bible, where there's this sense of like, basically, you know, he says, you can't say that you love God if you hate your brother. So there is this intimate connection between humanity and God. And I think we're afraid of that because we're interested in being right. We're interested in this uniqueness of Christianity or whatever it comes from. But for me, 
there's a there's I'm going to introduce another ism, right? So you talked about sort of maybe fideism and, and empiricism, evidence versus faith. And I would just say there's this thing for me, it's pragmatism of saying, and, and pragmatism is probably not the right word, but for me that represents this sense of like, I really don't care because what I get from the New Testament is if I don't love my brother, I don't love God. So what does it matter? Like, I want to focus on that love. I want to focus on the relationality of me and my relationship to fellow human beings. Do I love my neighbor as myself? That for me is loving God. And it sounds, I know, and, and, and I think what people translate as, well, you're trying to get away from the supernaturality of it or something. I'm like, why do we focus on that? For me, I see it in the New Testament. So if we're talking about being a biblical Christian, I see this move to, uh, you know, seeing ourselves. And, and Paul talks about in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ in us. And so how do we start to see each other as Christ's? And how do we start to relate to one another in that way? So I think the, the for me, the binary I'm trying to overcome is more that, you know, well, God says, you know, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, as those are as though those are two different things. But what I see as we progress in the New Testament, as though those are not two different things, those are the one and the same thing. Steve and I have often mused in other ways on this uh, uh, on this podcast, but in conversation about the um, about the interplay, the the instrument with which I used to love myself is the instrument that I used to love others and love God. And there's an interplay between them that, you know, so many of us are terribly inept at loving ourselves. And then we wonder why we struggle to relate to others. Um, and we struggle what we, we wonder why also we struggle to relate to God and engage God. And that's just because as, as people, this love thing um, is often a, a fuzzy ideal uh, it's also often turned competitive and legalistic, um, which I think is what you're poking at as well in your book, you know, and trying to move beyond. But this this is actually the substance, you know, like the whole thing of Jesus going, well, you can actually summarize the law and the prophets in this, basically, you know, um, which is which is a glorious misquote, <laughs> but I think he'd roll with it. <laughs> right, right. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I think that's I think that's exactly well. And again, I I want to come down because I think we're we we keep revolving around some of these traditions, which is like we're terrified to say that the most important contribution to Christianity is the emphasis on love because it feels so pedestrian, <laughs> or it feels like non natural, not non not supernatural, and I just don't understand why we're so why we cling to that so much, right? Like. The Old Testament itself doesn't really have a conception of the afterlife. There really isn't any formulated thought of what happens when we die. But I think there's a sense in which that we're so terrified. Maybe, maybe I'll say that this is an overgeneralization, and I'll walk it back. And I'll, I'll, if you publish this, I'll say you edit it, and I'll say you're liars. <laughs> but I feel like there's such an emphasis on. Well, I would say this: we, I think, we are afraid to die. And I feel like we're such we put so much emphasis on the supernatural because we want to be certain that there's something after we die. So we read all this stuff into it. We make things supernatural. It's so important that Jonah was literally historically swallowed by a whale because that proves that there's something supernatural, which proves there's an afterlife, which now I can feel good about. But I just don't see that emphasis. I think that the light that, G that Jesus followers can be in the world is so much more pragmatic it's so much more practical it's so much more sociological and cultural and uh makes a difference in in our everyday 
life, right? And so, and this isn't foreign to the Bible, right? So, you know, First John, we hear this, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. But anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. Like, oh my gosh, that's scandalous to say. All we have to do to be in the light and not stumble is love one another? Like, that feels so universal. People often, I, I feel misread Jesus' response in that, of going, you know, love God, love yourself, love others. And, and the linking of those two together is almost bypassing a lot of the law thing, which was, you know, a, a scandalous thing to do. But, but I honestly don't think he was making it any easier by throwing that out there, because he's, there's a drilling down to the intentionality. You know, and, and of course, John, as the, as the mystical author, is, is remembered as the guy who'd always be carried in going, you know, everyone just love one another kind of thing, you know, over and over. And, and so, so there is an interplay between this, and it doesn't, it doesn't actually make it easier. The legalism is actually the easier option. It's very easy to decide who's in and out based on legalism and then to justify your behavior towards them, with, you know, in rejection and behavior towards others in, in, in terms of acceptance. It's very hard to go, well, if we take that legalism out of the frame and we put our, our, our love for self, others, God, cosmos into the picture, now we're talking about presence, we're talking about showing up, we're talking about seeing, being seen, uh, we're talking about the quality of the relational connection and, and what's, what's evoked by it, but we're also talking about it at a deeper cost because it's easy to write someone off as the enemy. It's not easy to go, how do I love this chop? <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You just said it just as well or better than I could. I think that's, I think you na nailed it. I'm, I'm going to quote you on that. I'll, I'll, I'll say <laughs> that, that last phrase. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I, I really love that, Jared. I think if, if um, you know, Tim, you're talking earlier about just some of the, the supposed dualities, you know, science, religion, et cetera, et cetera. Again, this idea of love as pedestrian, as you talk about, Jared. I think anybody who's ever tried to love people very well and very deeply knows in the core of their being that love is not pedestrian. And is exactly as you say, Tim. Um, and I think that you're, you're, you're saying a lot of this, Jared. Um, not just here, you know, tonight with us, but in your book and, and in other places where I've listened to you speak that um, if anything is pedestrian, actually, as you say, Tim, it's this, it's this legalism. And so, Jared, I'm, I'm wanting to make sure that I'm following you well here. So if I can just reflect for a minute. What I hear you saying is almost a blend of if we're talking within the framework of, you know, commandment one and two that Jesus pulls out love God, and then self and others in number two, is, are you, are you intentionally saying you see no distinction now between those two? And so is there a lack of personhood distinction that you're making? Or are you saying that the personhood is still very much there, me as self, others as others, God as God, but the interplay is just much closer than we originally thought? Or is it more of a sort of an amorphous mass as long as love is being practiced? I just want to make sure I'm hearing you really well. Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. I think for better or worse, we all come with a contextual framework. And, and I'm, I'm from the West in the 20th century. So 
I can't help but think in terms of selfhood, right? So it could create some anxiety for me to talk about the amorphous mess because I'd like to be organized. Um, <laughs> so I like boundaries. I like distinctions. But, you know, that's a product of me being in the West. So I don't think it's, for me, it's understanding that we all have a provisional system, but the emphasis needs to fall on provisional. Like we're all trying to understand ultimate reality from a very limited framework and perspective. So for me, you know, it's not needing to kind of come to this one consciousness idea. And I think some traditions are do that. You know, I think that's fine. I think that's that's how they think about things. Um, so Christ, you know, uh, Richard Rohr would talk about Christ as kind of the universal consciousness. Um, and so that Jesus embodies this Christness in such a way. Mm-hmm. For me, this is not important. For me, it's more, I come from the Western philosophical tradition, which says it just doesn't matter to me. It, I, I can't know that for sure. I, I have no certainty on whether, what does it mean for Christ to be in us, the hope of glory? What, what's Paul talking about? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, it's a mystery to me, right? So I, I follow after the Paul who spends 11 chapters trying to figure out this literal story of this personal God being the God of Israel in a geographic sense. And now all of a sudden with Jesus, the, the Gentiles are included and the whole world is included. And Paul spends 11 chapters figuring it out and ends with this chapter of doxology that just says, who knows the mysteries of God? I don't know. So in my mind, the when we talk about mystery, are we talking about the mystical experience? For some people, that's a personal experience. For me, it comes more intellectually to the end of my reason. Like I understand that when I say reason, I'm coming at it from a very Western, individualistic, boundaried perspective. And I don't at all pretend that that's reality. I think it's useful for certain things in terms of developments in technology and medicine and all kinds of other things. I think it's harmful in just as many ways sociologically and in our community. And, and so I just say, you know what, what do I know? Um, what I do know is I have a responsibility to love people well, and I choose to believe that God is a part of that. And that's what it means for me to be a Christian. And beyond that, it's not that I don't have opinions. It's not that I, God is a personal being, not a personal being. I just think, Oh my gosh, how would I ever know that? Because this God we're talking about is so much bigger. If if God exists, God is so much bigger than my 19 you know 90s upbringing would allow me to understand. Thanks. That's really helpful to clarify. I really appreciate that. That's a great answer. Thank you. Um sure. We uh, to quote somebody great who I've listened to on the internet now and then. We're approaching the end of our time here. That sounds familiar, Jared. <laughs> oh, oh, dagger to the heart. Oh. <laughs> I really enjoy. Well, at it least you it had to say it, like... not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It often feels as though you're grabbing the reins to just uh, Pete or Framp. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> oh. <laughs> that that's a tweetable as well. I, I'd love to know some of the journey around around the book. Um, and, and I'm less interested, if you're willing to share it, than, you know, kind of the abstraction around the book and writing, et cetera, et cetera, and more around the personal story, because my assumption is, um, you know, doing some writing myself and knowing other people who work creatively like that, that, that the written word is, is a product of the personal story often. And in some way, sometimes it's presented quite generally and somewhat abstractly. Um, and I found that, I mean, I really enjoyed reading your book because I thought it was, it was a great blend of just well thought through content, if that doesn't sound too crude, you know, I mean that really respectfully, I thought it was really well written content 
and yet often your vehicle was so personal and so vulnerable and how do you delivered it and I, I thought that was an amazing blend that you that you hit there and so my question would be i'd love to to hear some more about arriving at this position of love matters more within your personal story how did that take shape um within you and, and then you know eventually it spills out in the book i imagine if I'm not wildly off in my assumptions. No, no, no. Uh, you're, you're, you, are, you are wildly off. I really only care about truth, but I thought this would you know, sell lots of books. Um, no. So, uh, I mean, as I think about it, you know, there really were two trajectories. There was my personal experience, and then there was this experience of writing the book. So I actually wanted to write the book about truth. I, I started this book back in 2008 when I was a pastor. Um, and it was all about truth and it was the distinctions of truth and it was, it was super nerdy and super academic and no one would have read it. Um, and so whenever a publisher reached out to me, you know, in this case, Zondervan said, Hey, we want you to write a book. And I said, well, great. I have this great book. I'd love to talk about truth. And, uh, you know, he graciously said, okay, um, no one's going to read that. Oh, they didn't say that, but they said, well, how do we focus on something else? And so we kept pushing back. And then the more I wrote, the more I thought, you know what, this isn't about truth. This book's about love. Um, it's about this relationship between, between truth and love. And that's when I started reflecting on my own story and, and sort of the evolution I had gone through and thought, ah, this is, this is probably what we need to be talking about. So um, it started as a truth about book. It ended as a truth about love. And I think that's more representative of my story of being someone who grew up thinking that the way to win Christianity was to be the smartest person in the room and then to fail so badly at relationships as a pastor and otherwise and as a friend by needing to be the smartest person in the room and realizing I wasn't winning um, and recognizing that maybe I had the whole rubric wrong that maybe when Jesus says the most important thing is to love your neighbor as yourself he really meant it and to realize looking back at the people that I should have been admiring and respecting all this time were the unknowns, the people at the back of the pew who gave up their time and energy and resources to love people well, to love the marginalized, to love their families. And I was dismissing them because they weren't smart enough. And that was heartbreaking to me in, in, in writing this book. And so that's sort of the impetus is to say, how do we, how do we start a culture in Christianity where we uplift the lovers, not the knowers? Well, one of the great things about being on the, on the internet like this and all three of us in our own rooms connected is we're all the smartest people in the room. Well, actually, I, unfortunately, I have to confess my wife is in the same room with me, so I don't, I don't know if I can claim that. You're, you're lucky. I was going to stay until my seven-year-old walks into my room. <laughs> I love that, um, that, that, that transition, and I, I imagine there's been there's an incredible backstory there that is quite uh, succinctly summarized <laughs> with most of it edited out and, and, and filtered out the arrival at that, that, that depth, there's, there's a, there's a cost to it. There's a cost to embracing it. There's a cost to letting something go in terms of your competitiveness. Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of pain. Um, there's a lot of pain involved, a lot of hurting people. And, and then the key is not hurting people. The key for me was admitting that that's what I had done. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have the energy to double down and say, no, you know, I, I was telling the truth in love. It was, no, I get it. I, I hurt someone. And it was really because I wanted to win Christianity um, and not because I really wanted to hear the message that was being preached to me for the last 30 years. In some ways there's a, um, 
love is invitational <laughs> and and love is receptive um whereas whereas truth is is very much it's it's out there and there's very much a you know there can be a bullying component did you experience a lot of 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 bullying in that sense a lot of evangelical bullying in in your upbringing or or did you manage to bypass that simply by winning yeah i wanted to be the bully so that was that was my way out of that was to be the one who I, my goal was i would have never known this and it wouldn't have been conscious but subconsciously it was i can't be bullied if i'm the smartest person in the room so i that was my goal to always be the smartest person in the room no no i mean that's that's deeply profound and really vulnerable and you know i just i just want to express my appreciation um at you sharing that of course you know jared i was uh, it was really interesting i uh, i realized i i think i got to I think it's chapter nine or 10 <clears throat> where you finally allow yourself to take aim at, okay, so are we allowed to tell people what we think? <laughs> and, and I didn't notice it until I hit that point. And I, I read the book over three days. And so this is kind of built over three days time, obviously, because it's very biblical three days. So it had to be that. Otherwise it wouldn't be right. <laughs> um, and I sort of finally arrived at that chapter and was like, oh, how long was this going to take you to finally get to, are we allowed to tell people if we think they're wrong? And the sudden moment of realization in myself of the tension that had been building over the three days, as you'd held back and held back and held back throughout the book on this idea. And then you move in that direction of the perhaps and the opinion, which, which really struck me. Um, and I just wanted to say that that was a real gift to me um, because it was one of those spaces, you know, when you, you talk about this, this space of, you know, if you can be the smartest in the room, then, then you're going to survive being impacted by other people and potentially survive being bullied by the, you know, the whole machine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was one of those spaces of realization for me of just going, man, I really thought I'd put this whole thing to bed. And yet reading through the book, it just came up again as a fresh, thing <laughs> you really do still want to tell people when they're wrong steve um and so uh, <laughs> in in response to what you've offered i just wanted to say thank you that was a profound gift to me um so to have to lean into that tension and eventually arrive there and go oh, but i agree with what you're saying why was i feeling all this tension oh okay because i'm not sure i'm actually there yet uh, and still kind of trying to lean into the work in process so yeah, but by my way, sort of, of of signing off and thanking you for your your time and your attention and your willingness to answer our questions um, on this episode. Uh, thank you. That was a that was a really great gift to me through your writing. I I appreciate that, Steve. I think that's a lot of insight on your part um, to recognize. Right, it takes a lot of self awareness to kind of feel those feelings and and sense that tension. And but I, I think you're pointing out something really helpful, which is most of the time when I talk about this, it's really People want to rush to, yeah, but tell me how I can tell people that they're wrong. I want to do it in a better way, but I still want to do it. Um, and, and, and that's why it was so important that I started with chapters on humility and, and really understanding what's going on in us, that it's an entire framework and system. And again, I don't, I don't blame anyone in particular. There's just a system that's been built over generations that put the emphasis on winning Christianity, on getting things right. And I think that's just been really destructive 
for us and even for our witness. We're sort of undermining ourselves as Christians. Yeah, and, and from our side, thank you so much for um, being willing to you know, p- pick up a request from two strangers on the other side of the planet on the internet and taking the risk of joining us for an episode. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for so much for, for, for just being so present to the conversation and, and so personal. Yeah, thank you guys. I, I really appreciate it. I'm always honored that people take the time to read the book. And, you know, it's still kind of a surprise for me of like, oh, you actually read what I wrote. That's impressive. So, um, so yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you so much.